Coming up on episode six of the Keto Camp podcast, we have a leader in the ketogenic space and best-selling author of Lies My Doctor Told Me, Dr. Ken Berry. fats you got to fix your diet now if you want to build muscle you've got to lift weights if you want to increase your endurance you've got to do endurance sports you've got to exercise if you want to slash your risk of dementia you, you need to exercise you need to be active there are hundreds and hundreds of things that exercise is great for but fat loss ain't one of them I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. I'm really grateful that I had Dr. Ken Berry come on the show and I'm really excited to share him with you on this episode because the conversation that we have is transformational. Dr. Ken Berry, he's a true leader in the space and he shares his story of being a conventional medical doctor, obese, following the nutrition advice that he was taught in medical school, bringing out those books, going into the attic and following that advice and he ended up gaining weight because of it and he started to realize oh it's not that my patients aren't listening to me it's the advice that I'm giving them it's the wrong advice it's the wrong information so he started to really question everything including himself and his diet so he started reading books he came across these three books that he'll share which three books these are I recommend you read them if you haven't done so already and these three books changed his life and changed his entire outlook on nutrition and health. And then he started losing weight. He got much, much healthier. And then he started putting patient after patient on this keto fasting protocol. And the next thing you know, he is now a leader, a YouTube star. If you haven't subscribed to his YouTube channel, go to YouTube and put in Dr. Ken Berry, subscribe to it. He has amazing videos on there. We also talk about in this episode, why conventional medicine has gotten it wrong and crazy information that's being told to us, like by the way, the Diabetes Association, the diet they recommend has zero, it's 0% zero based off of research and 100% based off of something called expert consensus. And he's gonna break that down. And then we get into cholesterol, we get into heart disease, we get into diabetes, which me and Dr. Barry have a strong passion for reversing this terrible epidemic of diabetes and the associated diseases with diabetes and he tells a powerful story on the difference between an elevated a1c versus an elevated ldl and while why doctors are looking at it completely backwards and he shares some information that's going to actually be alarming so if you're taking statins you're going to want to listen to this if you know somebody's taking statins you're going to want to listen have this episode share with them and then we talk a lot about what to do when you're dining in restaurants. 
what things to look out for. What can you request from the waiter, from the waitress to make sure you are getting the best from that restaurant. This episode is loaded with amazing information on keto, on fasting, on conventional medicine versus the functional approach. And I'm excited to share an amazing individual with you who's on a mission to just change the world. And I am on this mission with Dr. Ken Berry. So without further ado, here is Dr. Ken Berry. Ken Berry, MD, is a family physician, speaker, and author based near Nashville, Tennessee. He was born in Linden, Tennessee, and grew up in a very small southern town of Hawthornwell, Tennessee. He received a Bachelor of Science degree with honors in animal biology and psychology from Middle Tennessee State University in 1996. He received his MD from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee, 2000. Ken has been practicing family medicine in rural Tennessee for over a decade. He is board certified in family medicine and has been awarded the degree of fellow by the American Academy of Family Physicians. Having seen over 20,000 patients during his career of all ages, he is uniquely qualified to write on both acute and chronic diseases. More and more, Dr. Berry has focused on the chronic diseases caused by the standard American diet and lifestyle and he has made it a mission to turn the tide on the epidemic of type 2 diabetes, chronic inflammation, and dementia. All right, Dr. Ken Berry, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Thank you for being here. I really want to get into young Dr. Ken Berry, a child. What got you into the health field when you were a young boy growing up? Was it your parents? What was it that sparked an interest for you to be in this field? Well, I'm the, the first uh, person that I know of in my family, even the extended family, to become a physician. And I knew from a very early age I wanted to be a doctor. But uh, starting about 13 years of age, I started having these very severe, very regular migraine headaches that would basically end my day when I would have one. And so I had to, I said, well, I can't be a doctor. You know, doctors are on call. They stay up all night. And if I didn't get eight hours of sleep on the dot, I would have a migraine the next day. And so I kind of just hung that dream up and thought, well, I'll just do something else. I don't know, maybe business, maybe engineering, maybe architecture. But always that was that was the first thing that I ever wanted to be. And, and the only thing I ever really dreamed about. And so then when I got into college, I noticed the migraines were getting less severe. And so I thought, well, maybe I can be a doctor. So that was back on the table, and that's what I wound up being. But that was kind of my my earliest childhood dream as a career. And you became a medical doctor, and I know that you were working in the emergency room, and you did a lot of really intense procedures. Could you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I actually went through a, a family practice residency, but in the state of Tennessee, it's very often a family doctor who is... Uh, the ER doctor. We, we more and more were having uh, ED boarded doctors run the emergency departments, but still in the in the smaller communities, it's very often a family doctor because in Tennessee, family doctors are much more aggressively trained than in some other states. We've delivered hundreds of babies. We've done hundreds of procedures because of the rural emergency departments. We have to have that training. And, and there are also doctors, who, family doctors who deliver babies in the rural hospitals in Tennessee and some other uh, of the southern states. And so we have to have that training. And so we're trained very broadly and very deeply 
in some of the Tennessee residency programs. So I was very comfortable in the ER. And in fact, when I finished my res residency, I had no intentions of ever having a clinic. I was going to spend my career being an, an emergency department physician. And I really enjoyed my time there and, and uh, did many, many procedures in that small ER where I was practicing. Very often I would do a procedure I'd never seen done before. And so being in the emergency department it's it's either put up or shut up. I mean, you know, when somebody's there and they are dying and they're, you know, the nearest hospital is two hours away by, by ambulance, 45 minutes away by, by a chopper, by the time the chopper gets to you and then, you know, does their thing, it really focuses you. You're like, no, you, this is not optional. You have to do this. And you've never done this before. And you maybe saw one in residency training, but you better get back there and Google it or, or you know, and, and doctors obviously have physician level resources on the internet that we can subscribe to. And so many times I would be back there looking at Finninger's, which is a huge uh, textbook about just medical procedures and how to do them. And then I would come back up and be like, okay, let's sedate them and do it because they're not going to make it until they get to the uh, tertiary hospital. And so there were many nights where after I had done something I had never done before, it took me a minute to get to sleep. I, I would imagine. Did you did you witness some people pass away before your eyes? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we, you know, some people, it's just too late. You do everything you can. And some people, it's obviously too late. You just go through the motions for the family. But yeah, we, you know, I, I was witness and uh, the, the pronouncing position for many deaths, hopefully none because of my incompetence, but definitely that just happens if you're an ED physician. Yeah. And so I know that you didn't have any intentions to have your own clinic, but you had a lot of patients who were telling you that, hey, you're so great. You should open your, open your own clinic. And after a hundred or so people telling you that you opened up your own clinic and you had a thriving practice. And uh, around the age of 35, 36, you noticed that you were pre-diabetic and you, you were telling a story about your patients. You were telling them to lose weight and they kind of gave you a half stare to your belly. Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I had always been very slender and very athletic. I played three sports in high school. You know, I was just that, that slender guy. When I was a senior in high school, I was six foot three inches tall and weighed 185. So you can imagine, I mean, I was bony is what we would call it in the South. But as I got very busy with the practice, I'm sure the stress and cortisol and the, and I was also on call one or two nights a week in the emergency department. And so I'm sure all that played a toll, but it was also, I was just eating pure junk. When I was younger, I had eaten better, but I was in a relationship where it was completely acceptable that your breakfast be a big glass of chocolate milk with some powdered donuts crumbled up in that. And that would, that would be a routine breakfast as I would drive from home to the ED or from the, you know, I was working in the ED while I was still a resident. So sometimes I would drive from Memphis to this small community and that would literally be my breakfast or I'd grab three or four Nutri-Grain bars because, you know, they're healthy. Or I would, uh, you know, I would get a Diet Dr. Pepper or a Diet Mountain Dew because that, you know, that's better. And that would cancel out the the three sausage egg and cheese biscuits I would have on the way to work. But after a few years and then also getting older, my, my metabolic balance just shifts. That happens to all of us. And so I, I was starting to get short of breath when I would try to bend over and tie my shoes. And one of the things that really triggered me was, you know, I would be telling an obese patient, you know, we got to get some of this weight off you. And they would cast this furtive glance down 
to the button over my belly button because it was in danger of popping and putting out one of their eyes at any minute. <laughs> and, you know, they would glance at me like, dude, your water's about to break, it looks like, and you're going to tell me I need to lose weight? Okay. okay. And so I was raised in a very common sense blue-collar family in the deep south. And basically, you led by example. You put up or shut up. You put out or get out. I mean, it was performance-based. You did not. You couldn't sit on the couch and talk about this, that, and the other because it wouldn't be very many seconds at all before somebody would ask you, what have you done? Have you done that? How do you do it? You know, show me how. Because people, they're, they're, it was just a no-nonsense upbringing. So I could not be that guy for the rest of my career who was an obese type 2 diabetic doctor who was just miserable and upset all the time. And then I was going to be the guy that told people, oh, you need to lose weight. Here's how you need to do it. Because people in the South will call your hand on that. They'll be like, well, it looks like it ain't working that well for you. So you sure this is going to work, Doc? And I just, I couldn't do that. And so also I just felt the, it was very incongruous. It was, I just, I hated it. And I hated my time as a doctor in that physical condition. And also I didn't want to be a type two diabetic and I was moving towards that. I was pre-diabetic. I think my A1C was 6.1 at its highest. I was inflamed chronically. All my joints hurt, reflux, dandruff, rosacea, all that crap. I had all the crap and I was just miserable. And I thought, there's gotta be a better way than this. This can't be my fate. And I was 35 at the time. You have to remember that. I was, I was still relatively young, but I, I was acting and feeling like an old man. So you went to the attic and you got your medical textbooks. Yeah, I thought I must have I must have forgotten some of my nutrition training, right? And so I go to the attic and rummage around, and all I could find that I had my the, the entirety of my medical training was maybe a three eighths of an inch thick paperback book and a quarter inch thick of type notes. That was it. That was all I got. That's I got not, a half. That's not a lot. Right. I got a half a semester. I think it was our second year. We got one half a semester and the semester was broken up. So one hour of uh, nutrition a week. And then for the other half of the semester, it was behavioral science. And both of these specialties, I think, get the short uh, end of the stick in medical school because any doctor from a family doctor to a psychiatrist needs to understand the human mind. I mean, that's that's a huge part of practicing meaningful medicine and then also if you don't understand the basics of the of the feeding of the human mammal that's the foundation of all health how can you even pretend that you understand human health and human medicine when you don't even know how to feed a human being and so i got all that down and, and went over it again and, and the three pillars that were taught to me in my nutrition training was eat lots of whole grain don't eat any saturated fat and jog that was literally it. But now let me not completely sell out my medical school. We, we received wonderful training when it comes to the parental nutrition of somebody who's unconscious in the ICU or who's had a disastrous burn injury and they're in the burn unit. I could calculate their nutrition to keep them alive and to keep them from developing skin breakdown and, and to help them heal that. I could calculate that stuff. But when it comes just to, to feeding a normal guy who's got a wife and a dog and a job, and how do I feed that guy so he doesn't become an overweight type 2 diabetic? I had no idea how to do it. So I put those three pillars into action in my own life. And so over the next couple of months, I, I ate zero saturated fat. I ate lots of whole grains. I stopped my chocolate milk and donuts. And I tried to jog at least three or four days a week. And over the next two months, I gained another five or 10 pounds. And so <laughs> it, was, it was at that point, that was my epiphany 
of dude, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You literally are an idiot when it comes to the, the feeding of a just a human out in the wild. And that's when I started to get outside of my little medical doctor box and, and start reading other works of nutrition that were considered anathema by medical practice at that time. I read Atkins' Diet Revolution. I read Mark Sisson's Primal Blueprint. I read uh, Lauren Cordain's Paleo Diet. And through those three books, I kind of put together, I thought, I'm going to try this. I'm not going to even talk about this out loud to patients, but I'm going to try this in my own life because this is upside down and backwards to every single thing I was taught in medical school. And I immediately started to get better. I immediately started to lose weight. My A1C started to come down. My inflammation that was chronic and severe started to get better. I did paleo for a while and that helped a little. And then I kind of stalled out on that. And then I, I kind of transitioned that into low carb, did better, but still didn't get where I wanted to be. Then I, and I was reading about this ketogenic diet and I thought, what is this? And so it resonated with me and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go keto for a month or two, see what happens got much, much better, lost even more fat that I just couldn't get to with, with paleo or low carb. Inflammation continued to get better. And it was at that point, after two or three months of me doing a ketogenic diet that I thought, you know, I'm going to offer this to my most morbidly obese patients, the sickest of the sick, people who have a BMI of 45 or 50 or 55, who are on the schedule to have gastro bypass. They have the very dangerous row and Y procedure, which is gonna basically chop out a huge part of the gastrointestinal system and enforce starvation on them for the rest of their life. Before they do that, I'm gonna say, hey, why don't you try this diet with me? I'm doing it. And, and then also my patients were starting to notice the difference in me. I looked markedly different. I looked healthier. I, I, was, I had much more energy. I was sleeping better. And they all were noticing that. And they're like, what are you doing, doc? You look better. And so I started to recommend this, this diet, this ketogenic diet to my most morbidly obese patients. And they immediately all started to get better. And they would come back after a month of this. And I would follow them monthly because I was very concerned this diet was somehow dangerous because I didn't know anything about it. Never been taught anything about it. And each month they would come back and they'd be like, please, doc, tell me I can do this for another month because I love this diet. And I've lost 20, 30 pounds in a month. And I'm like, yeah, let me check all your labs. And then I'd call them and say, yeah, everything looks okay, man. I think you can do it for another month. And I had many of these men and women call and cancel their appointment with the bariatric surgeon because they had discovered a way to lose the fat naturally. And they were very happy about that because uh, even if a bariatric surgeon tells you the risks of row and Y, you don't really comprehend the potential long-term disastrous outcomes that can come from that barbaric procedure. And so I was very happy that I finally discovered a tool that I could help these people. And I didn't just have to throw up my hands and say, I give up. I don't know. I'm going to send you to the surgeon. He's going to chop out part of your stomach and your intestines. And uh, it made medicine more fun again for me because I actually had a bullet for my gun. I actually had something I could do for that patient. So what kind of backlash did you get from your peers when they heard you were doing keto and paleo and you were kind of going against the grain there? What, what happened with that? I didn't really talk about it a lot. And like I said, I just I kept it just for my sickest patients with the highest A1C and the highest BMI. And doctors, at least in the South, we're, we're a lot like mountain lions. We get on our mountaintop and, and we just leave everybody else alone and vice versa. And so there's really not a lot of camaraderie here at, at this level of medicine, at least in this area of the country. 
there was no doctor's lounge that we'd all go hang out in. You know, we had a medical society meeting at once a quarter, but almost nobody went to that. Just the medical society president, the secretary, that was about it. And so there just wasn't that give and take. But I suspect that if I had discussed this with any of them, they would have said, dude, you're nuts. What are you doing? Stop that. You're going to get sued. But there's more talk between physicians on Twitter than there is in the in the real medical world, unless you're a surgeon and you go to the you know the, the doctor's lounge between procedures, but then usually you just wind up watching uh, MSNBC or or you know you just wind up watching your stock portfolio on TV and you don't do a lot of talking about hey let's talk about how we can help our patients be healthier. I, I remember my time in Memphis as a training resident. If I had walked into the surgeon's lounge and be like hey let's talk about diet and how I can help our our patients. I would have been looked at like, what the hell has he been drinking? I don't, I don't think any doctor would have been interested in discussing that because in fact, they're really usually just uh, want to talk about how can I get the next person prepped sooner and how is my stock portfolio doing? Mm. Okay. So before we get into your amazing book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, phenomenal book. You guys have to get this. I know it's going to be available on Audible soon. Who's doing it with you? Well, actually, there's been a little snafu. I was going to do it with a good friend of mine, but he's so busy with his projects, he's, we're not going to be able to do that. So I'm going to fly out to, to Las Vegas the second week in July and spend four or five days, and I'm going to do the Audible version myself. Awesome. And so then hopefully sometime in August, it will be available where all good books are sold as an Audible version. And it's available now paperback everywhere, so make sure you get it. And we'll, we'll get into that in a few minutes. I want to get into type 2 diabetes. And uh, have you seen keto be a, a effective for somebody with type 2 diabetes and share some stories and some victories? I'd love to hear that. So the more I do this and the more I talk about this on social media and then at, you know speaking events where I travel to speak, what I have come to see, type 2 diabetes is not even actually a disease. It is one of the many ways that poison in your diet can manifest itself. And so the poisons that I talk about the most are any sugar, any grains at all, and any industrial seed oils. Because, and the reason I've come to, to move my own paradigm when it comes to type 2 diabetes and many other chronic diseases we can talk about, if you'd like, is when you remove those three poisons from the patient's diet, the type 2 diabetes goes away. And so what do they really have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes with an ICD-10 code? Or is this just a case of carbohydrate poisoning and industrial seed oil poisoning? Because if I was poisoning your dog, Ben, with uh, mercury and your dog was getting sicker and sicker and sicker and you took him to the vet and the vet said, yeah, I don't know, this dog's really sick. It looks like he's got fill in the blank, you know, uh, canine fibromyalgia because your doc probably wouldn't check a mercury level because that's just not something you'd normally do. But then I stopped poisoning your dog and your dog got better. Would we say that, oh, your dog's canine fibromyalgia got better? Or would we say, no, actually, Dr. Barry just stopped poisoning your dog and your dog got healthy again. That's what type 2 diabetes is, is it's carbohydrate overdose and industrial seed overdose. And when you remove all the unneeded carbohydrates and you remove all the inflammation caused by the grains and the oils and the sugars, the patient gets over being poisoned and they're not poisoned anymore. And so they get better. And so I guess you could say we, we reversed their type two diabetes or we cured their type two diabetes, or you could just say the patient stopped poisoning themselves. 
I heard you say that the American Diabetes Association, that the diet they promote is based off of 0% research and it's ex- expert consensus. Could you, could you share about that? Most doctors, we talk about EBM, which is supposed to stand for evidence-based medicine. And I'm still a huge proponent of true evidence-based medicine, but very, very often there's no meaningful research on a topic. And so the the EBM winds up standing for eminence-based medicine. And so the the biggest authorities at Harvard or UCLA or the Mayo Clinic, they get in the room and they decide what they think is best and that becomes EBM. And that's, that's not evidence. I don't care how many years you've been practicing medicine, your paradigm can be wrong. What you think you know can be absolutely wrong. And we only have to look back, uh, for examples, in medical history, we can find lobotomy. We can find, you know, giving every middle-aged woman Valium. We can find bleeding and bloodletting and leeches. All these things were just idiotic. But at the time, the leading authorities in medicine would have considered that standard of care. And you're a bad doctor if you didn't offer lobotomies to your young, you know, 12, 13-year-old male patients who couldn't sit still in class, you were a bad doctor if you didn't offer that option. And you were a bad doctor if you didn't give every woman who was perimenopausal Valium. Because we know Valium's not habit-forming because the drug rep told us that. And that's a true story, by the way. When Valium first came out, it was all doctors were told, this is not habit-forming like the other stuff. And the other stuff was barbiturates. We knew that was habit-forming. But the benzos were supposed to be a non-habit-forming class of anti-anxiolytics, turns out they're exquisitely habit-forming. We know that now, but the drug reps misled many of the older doctors, and then the older doctors taught the younger doctors. And so we had this whole generation of women who had to have their three Valium a day to even, you know, live their life. And so there's so many examples in medicine where the eminent physicians of the day, the the gray-haired gentlemen with the long white coats, had no damn idea what they were talking about but yet that was considered standard of care. And I think that's right where we're at with the, the federal guidelines published in 1977 that said, you know, you need to get 50 or more percent of your calories a day from carbohydrates. And you need to avoid fat like cancer because fat's very bad for you. And there was no meaningful evidence that ever proved that, that ever even showed a, a reliable association between saturated fat and any kind of disease. And so for the last 50, 60 years, doctors have just been practicing ignorant, unsubstantiated medicine. And it's part of my mission, and I know it's part of yours too, to to change that and to break the back of the diabetes epidemic and the obesity epidemic and the fatty liver epidemics. Because in reality, what all those things are, are overdoses of carbohydrates and industrial seed oils. That's all it is. And so once you enlighten your patient and say, hey, stop eating that crap, it's hurting you didn't they get better? 100%. It, it's so eye-opening when you when you come a- across these facts and you realize that, hey, I actually have much more power than I've been led to believe. And it's so empowering the way you just broke it down. You know, we have a lot in, in common, Dr. Barry, like you said, uh, we're both on a mission to educate. And uh, one thing is, is for sure, I'm having my salted butter coffee as well. I know you drink that. So, so cheers to that, brother. Yeah, and, cheers and, to the salted butter coffee. <laughs> and number two is, you said you've been called to reverse type 2 diabetes and obesity. Out of everything you could have been called about, right? Cancer, inflammation, it, well, they're all linked. But why specifically have you been called for type 2 diabetes and obesity? 
there's an article in the Tennessean, which is kind of the newspaper in Tennessee. It's published in Nashville, but it's a statewide paper that Benton County, the county I practiced in, was one of the most unhealthy counties. And this is back before any of my social media. This was back before any of that. I was just a guy going, you know, going five days a week and seeing as many patients as I could Monday through Friday. And that really pissed me off because I knew I was doing a pretty darn good job. And, you know, we had maybe one or two other physicians in town at that time and, and then a, a bevy of nurse practitioners taking care of patients. But I felt personally affronted by that article. I felt like that was a reflection on me, and it was. Uh, and so I decided to really step up my game. I was, and so I started out, I was going to make Benton County one of the healthiest counties in the state. But that quickly morphed into, why am I just concerned with Benton Countyans? Why am I not concerned with Tennesseans? Don't their lives matter? You know, I mean, it, it's sad when, when a Benton Countyan loses a father or grandmother to some disease that shouldn't even be on the radar but isn't it also just as sad when a Tennessean and then it was just a short jump to, you know, the U.S. and then the world. And I realized very quickly that in the at the Berry Clinic, I could take care of somewhere between 30 and 50 patients a day. And my wife, Nisha, who's also very active on social media, she, she one day just said this key phrase to me. She was like, how many people do you help a day at the clinic? I'm like, eh, 30, 40, 50. She's like, how many people could you help on social media? <laughs> And at the time, I had no social media presence. I had a Facebook page that I did just local, you know, and wish people happy birthday. I would, you know, publish my pithy quotes that I would come up with while I was seeing patients. But I had no YouTube. I had no any of the other stuff where I was actually trying to reach out and say, hey, stop eating poison. And that really resonated with me. Like, yeah, you got this big goal. You feel called to do this thing. How are you ever going to do that if you don't have some kind of worldwide platform that you can talk to people and tell them the things that you've learned on your journey. And so I argued with her at first, but I quickly realized that as usual, she was right. And so I started a YouTube channel and I started all my other social media about the same time. And that's, that's kind of where it all came from was an article in the Tennessee and saying that my County was one of the unhealthiest counties in the state. Yeah, great, great question from your wife, Nisha. Tell, tell her I said, great job with that question. Yeah, uh, and she deserves all the props because if, with, without her saying that, I'd still just be taking care of 30, 40, 50 people a day. You know, I could relate to that because I used to own a CrossFit gym here in Miami. I'm, I'm based out of Miami for four years. And last year, I came to that same conclusion. I'm spending so much time and energy at this location, and I love it. It's great. I'm, I'm helping the com community. I'm servicing them. But I want to help a, a lot more than just my community. I want to help the world. And I ended up selling my shares and leaving. And ever since then, I've been able to expand my reach, like you said, YouTube, social media, this podcast. And it's just such a wonderful thing in this day and age because it could be a double-edged sword. Somebody could go on Dr. Google and they could find terrible information or they, they could find a podcast like this and it could change their life. It's a gift and a curse, and I love that you're doing it. And your social media presence is it's phenomenal, and your YouTube channel is amazing. If you guys are not subscribed to the channel, uh, just type in Dr. Ken Berry on YouTube and see these videos. He has his uh, earbuds in, and he's, and he's just <laughs> communicating with you so well. You're really good, and you're very knowledgeable, very relatable, and you just cut through the noise. There's no gray area. It's black and white, right? And you just tell your truth as it is, and a lot of people are benefiting from that. So you said an elevated A1C is a shotgun pointed at your heart 
and an elevated LDL might be a BB gun. Could you expand? I've actually evolved even further since then. I now, uh, the more I look at the, the LDL research, I don't think it's any risk factor whatsoever. I think elevated total cholesterol and elevated LDL is not in any way dangerous. I don't think it increases your risk of heart attack and stroke at all. Uh, it may be elevated because of inflation, inflammation in your body, and, and that's your body's attempt to kind of spackle the damage being done in your arteries with cholesterol. But your your body makes cholesterol, and that was one of the one of the very early things when I went back because I had to pull out my physiology and biochemistry textbooks because we, we get all that in the first year or two of medical practice, but then you basically never talk about the basic sciences again. And when I went back and looked, I'm like, wait a minute, our body makes 3,000 milligrams of cholesterol a day, and your brain actually has its own independent cholesterol manufacturing process. And I'm like, why would we make something if it's just pure poison like we're taught as physicians? And that, that moved me even further. But there's no doubt that an elevated A1C, even if it's one-tenth of a point high above the reference range, an elevated triglyceride level, a low HDL level, I think those three markers are 1,000 times more important than an elevated LDL. And so, yeah, at worst-case scenario, the LDL might be a BB gun pointed at your leg. But an elevated A1C, an elevated triglyceride, and a low HDL, that's a shotgun aimed straight at your heart. And so I think so many doctors, we, we forget about proportionality. It's like, you know, riding on a tricycle in your lawn, that may be a little risk for you might fall and break a collarbone or something. But riding a motorcycle 145 miles an hour on a busy interstate with no helmet, that's a huge risk factor for trauma. And that's how I kind of liken these labs. You know, if, if your A1C is high and your triglycerides are high and your HDL is low, you're riding 145 miles an hour on a, a shaky motorbike with no helmet. That's how dangerous that is. But if your LDL is high and your other numbers are beautiful, you might be on a tricycle in, in your lawn. You might, you know, you might break a nail if you fall over. That's the relative risk of those two different metabolic panels. This is a lot of fun. You, you're really good at what you do. I, I love that that story. And, and last I heard is your total cholesterol was 350, hovering around 350. Your LDL was 250. Now, somebody might hear that and say, Dr. Barry, your, your heart's going to explode. What, what's going on, dude? Why are you not concerned? My answer would be my favorite question since I was old enough to talk is why? Show me the research. Let me see what you're basing that on. Because I also know that my A1C is in the low fives. And my HDL is above 60 and my triglycerides are below 70. And so I have no fear for my heart. I've got a little free time now that we had the, you know, the disastrous clinic fire. And so I'm going to get my CAC and my CIMT and a carotid Doppler check. And I'm going to post those on my YouTube channel and on my Facebook. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe my arteries are all clogged up. We'll see when I post those tests, but I suspect that my arteries are going to be pretty darn squeaky clean because I've been doing keto now for about five years. And uh, that's another thing I try to always do is be completely transparent. If I, if I, I've posted my labs numerous times on my Facebook page, I've talked about my labs all over the place and I want people to understand I'm, I've got a total cholesterol right now of 350. And I tell people all the time, if your doctor freaks out because your total cholesterol is high, your doctor's at least a decade behind 
in his or her reading because total cholesterol has been known by all the powers to be to be meaningless for at least a decade. Now, there are still doctors practicing, you know, where the rubber meets the road who don't know that. They, they're still concerned about that. But total cholesterol is a non-issue when it comes to heart disease. Now, and so some doctors, if, if they're saying, oh, your LDL is high, you need a statin, they're maybe only three to five years behind on their reading. So that's a little better doctor. But you may know this, Ben, the American Heart Association, the AHA slash ACC, their cardiac risk calculator has a box for LDL, but the LDL is not even used in the calculation of your cardiac risk, your 10-year heart attack risk. It's not even used in the calculation. They use the triglycerides and the HDL. That's what they use in the calculation. And anybody can go to the American Heart Association's calculator, plug in all your numbers, and then change the LDL, make it higher, make it lower. And you'll notice that your 10-year risk doesn't change at all. And Ivor Cummings, he's a great resource. And he's the guy who discovered this because he was playing with their calculator because he's an engineer and engineers play with calculators. That's what they do. And he's like, what the hell, kid? He's like, I put in an LDL of, of 80 and I put in an LDL of 180. And my 10-year risk doesn't change at all. They're wow. not even using the LDL in the calculation. So the American Heart Association is well aware that LDL plays no meaningful role in your 10-year heart attack risk. They know that, and they made their calculator to reflect that. But my question becomes then, why are they not talking about that out loud? Why are they letting people spend billions of dollars on all these stupid statins when they don't need them at all? They're not, they're, even if you lowered their LDL to 40, you're not changing their 10-year cardiac risk at all based on the AHA's actual calculator that's on their website. So why are we prescribing statins or the even more dangerous newer generation of drugs that are injectable that lower your LDL precipitously? Why are we doing that if it doesn't change someone's 10-year cardiac risk? So what's the answer? Why, why are they doing that? I think because they, they, their paradigm has not been shifted by you or I yet. We haven't happened to them yet, but we are slowly but surely. I just did a book signing in Little Rock, and there were two doctors and three nurse practitioners at the book signing who are, who are woke. They know now. Their, their paradigm has been shifted. They've hear, heard the bell ring, and they no longer talk about this stupid crap anymore, but there are so many doctors out there. They only listen to the American Heart Association, who's basically sold out to big food and big pharma. They're currently owned by them. And so they're stepping away from the total cholesterol myth and the LDL myth, but they're doing it very, very slowly because obviously they don't want to piss off their, their big sponsors, the people who write checks with five or six zeros uh, for donations to the AHA. They don't want to piss those people off. And so there's never going to be a press conference where the American Heart Association says, stop worrying about total cholesterol. It's not a risk at all. Mm -hmm. And stop worrying about LDL because we don't even use that to calculate your 10-year risk for heart attack and, and stroke. We don't even use that. So it's, it's dumb for you to be paying a copay every month of your life and taking these drugs that make you feel miserable. And these drugs also probably raise your risk of dying from all causes. Because, you know, in the end, the people that listen to your podcast and like things on my Instagram, they don't care what they die of. They just don't want to die. And so if I'm putting you on a medicine that might theoretically lower your risk of dying of a heart attack, but at the same time, I'm increasing your risk of dying of cancer. I mean, did I do you any service? Did I do you any, any favor? I don't think so. I just don't want to die, period. And so I think that 
eating a proper human diet and not taking dangerous prescription medications is the way for you to have the longest lifespan and the longest health span. And those are my goals. I don't care what your damn LDL is. I just want you to live a long, damn healthy life. When you're in your 70s and 80s, I want you out in the yard kicking the soccer ball around with your grandkids and your great-grandkids. That's my goal for you, not not to get a certain lab number that that has equivocal evidence at best to support it. Amen. Amen to that. I always say that we're not dying, we're killing ourselves. And it's just happening, happening so slowly that it's just not being classified as a suicide. Yes. But in, in reality, it's, yeah. it is. It's happening so slowly that we can't classify it as a suicide or a homicide. Mm. But I think both of those things are happening every single day in our loved ones and in our friends. And I don't suspect that any of the large powers that be will ever hold that press conference on CNN and Fox News and say, hey, we've been killing people for the last 50 years. Stop taking our advice. That's never going to happen. And that's why it occurred to me that Nisha was right. Social media is the answer because I can reach thousands or tens of thousands of people and say, hey, stop poisoning yourself and stop letting your doctor poison you. We are a known mammalian species. So the human species thrives on certain diets and the, the human species suffers and gets weak and sick on other diets. So I decided to use my social media to reach thousands of people, even tens of thousands of people and say, stop committing slow suicide. And then also stop allowing your doctor to commit slow homicide, because that's basically what's happening on a daily basis for all the people who are on statins and who are on type two diabetic medications that work by raising your insulin. That's how the medicine works. And we, we now know that a, a high blood sugar is very, very bad for you and very dangerous. But we also know that chronically elevated insulin levels are also very bad for you and very dangerous. And so that's why I decided, yeah, I'm going to go against the powers that be because they're never going to admit that they were wrong. They're just going to slowly back away from this. But there are people dying every day, Ben. We're losing fathers and, and mothers and grandparents, and we're losing brothers and sisters that we didn't have to lose. They're dying for no reason. They're dying for belief of a false paradigm. And I can't stomach that. I can't sit idly by while that happens. I've got to be as loud and as obnoxious and as broad spread as I can possibly be to try to save as many of these people as possible. 100%. I'm with you. Uh, let's get into your book, uh, Lies My Doctor Told Me. You have a story in here. Well, first of all, you say the way you judge someone's stature in the medical community is the length of their white quote. Uh, and then you shared a powerful story about Dr. Simon Weiss. I don't know if I said his name right. That really illustrates what you're talking about. Could you talk about both these things? Yeah, and so Semmelweis' story is a very powerful story that all doctors should know, but all patients should also know the story. And in a nutshell, to sum it up, Dr. Semmelweis was a young doctor. He was very intelligent, but he was a young doctor, and so he had a short white coat. And he, he, he basically gave the advice that doctors should wash their hands before they go from the morgue dissecting dead bodies. And back then they didn't have formaldehyde. So these were literally dead, rotting, mortifying bodies. They would have their hands in and they would go straight from there to the labor and delivery ward and deliver babies with those hands. And doctors were considered gentlemen back then. And so it was the, the paradigm of that time is a gentleman's never dirty, regardless of what he's done. He's not dirty. That was a social judgment. And so Semmelweis, basically, he said, dude, your hands are filthy. You need to wash your hands in carbolic acid before you go from the morgue to the labor and delivery unit because women were dying of childbirth fever 
and it was a very high rate of death. The, either the baby or the mom or both would die after these doctors delivered them. And Semmelweis noted that in the poor hospital where midwives delivered the babies, the midwives didn't do dissection, so they didn't handle dead bodies. The rate of childbirth fever and death was much, much it was drastically lower in that poor hospital than in the wealthy hospital where the doctors were the ones delivering the babies. And so he actually did research, good research, and he published the research, but his short coat, his short coat destroyed it because all the doctors laughed at him. They're like, dude, that's ignorant. Back then they didn't know about the germ theory of disease. That was before that had been discovered. And so they had no idea why these women were dying, but they knew it certainly wasn't the doctor's fault because they, these doctors were gentlemen with long white coats. And so Semmelweis, his medical career was destroyed and he wound up in an asylum. He was diagnosed as crazy and was put away. And during the intake at the asylum, he was beat up by the orderlies because I'm sure he was saying, no, good dude, you don't understand. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. We're killing people. And he was beaten so severely that he developed an infection probably from the same germ that the women were dying from. And he died in the asylum, a broken, destroyed man. But he was right. The doctors damn well should have washed their hands before they went from the putrefying bodies in the morgue to these brand new lives that they were bringing into the world in the delivery suite. And they were killing mothers and killing babies on a daily basis. But he was destroyed and his research didn't. And it, so it took 70 or 80 years, Ben, of women continuing to die in, in labor or a few days after before another doctor stumbled upon Semmelweis's research and went, whoa, wait a minute. Look at this. This is important. This is, he was right. We need to start washing our hands before we go from the morgue to the labor and delivery. And so after 80 years of moms and babies dying, needlessly, then it still took another decade for all the doctors to say, okay, whatever, whatever, I'll wash my hands if it'll make you happy. But I don't think that's what's causing it. And then the, the rate of childbirth and childbed fever plummeted and women were safer because of Semmelweis, who was at that time had been dead for 80 years destroyed as a doctor, his reputation destroyed, his medical practice destroyed. And so that's why many doctors are very afraid to step up and say, hey, I think we're killing people. We need to stop this because they don't want to follow in Semmelweis's footsteps because that's not a, not a fun journey to plot, right? And uh, I'm, I'm just enough of an iconoclast that I said, you know what? If this is right, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be a successful doctor with a long white coat who's well-paid and well-respected. I'd rather be right though the heavens fall. And so many, many doctors have reached out to me and said, dude, aren't you afraid of the medical board or the, or the AHA or the AMA? And I was like, you know what? They can bring it because what I'm trying to do is save lives. And that's what I took an oath to do. And so if they want to come at me, they can come at me because I think I'm much more protected by Semmelweis because Semmelweis didn't have YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. He didn't have any of those methods to spread what he was saying. All he could do was just publish it and put it in a medical journal. And he did that, but it didn't help anybody for 80 years. And so I don't, I don't want people to die for the next 80 years until this knowledge gets out there. And that's why I'm, I'm standing up against definite danger and definite risk to my medical license and, and my professional career because people deserve to know the truth. They do. They do. I have so much respect for that. And you're bringing his, his message back to life uh, so many years later. Uh, I, I'd love to talk about something called 
powdered butt syndrome, which I have experienced all the time. And I know my listeners are going to hear that and say, what the heck is he talking about? So what is powdered butt syndrome? Powdered butt syndrome is something I heard about from a, um, a radio broadcaster. His name's Dave Ramsey, and he's a financial guru. He helps people with just common sense financial issues. And he talked about powdered butt syndrome back when I was listening to talk radio, driving back and forth. Uh, during medical school, I would listen to his show, and he's, he's based in Nashville, and I think he's nationwide now. But basically, if, say, you as a, as a son, and you're trying to tell your dad, Dad, I've discovered this great way of eating. I, you know, I've, I've, I'm so much healthier. I've lost weight. People have actually re- reversed their type 2 diabetes with this diet. Your dad or your mom is just not going to hear that from you because you suffer from something called powdered butt syndrome. And basically, if any of your older relatives have ever changed your nappy and powdered your naked little butt when you're a baby, you could be a rocket science and a brain surgeon combined, and you still know nothing because of powdered butt syndrome. And and a lot of people tell me, yeah, I've got powdered butt syndrome bad. I've lost 100 pounds, but my dad still won't listen to me because I'm his kid. And it's very, very hard for parents to ever see their children as anything other than those cute little babies that they brought into the world and nursed and coddled and changed their little dirty diaper. It's hard to take meaningful advice from, you know, it's, it, it's hard for that. And so I tell people many times you have to find a family friend who your mom or dad respects and go that direction. And then also a lot of people use my YouTube videos because mm-hmm. I'm a doctor. Right. And so they'll be like, Mom, listen to this crazy doctor. He's saying that eating eating bacon and ribeye actually helps you with your diabetes. Listen to this. What in the world? And so a lot of times the parent will hear me because I'm a doctor. Right. I'm and I'm not their, their son or their daughter. And so they'll hear, hear the message from me when they would have never heard it from the son or daughter or the niece or nephew. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Third party is so powerful. So send the YouTube videos to your family. Now, somebody doing keto right now. And they're not getting the results they want. You've mentioned there's hidden sources of sugar, specifically Starbucks and chain restaurants uh, that are causing them to not get the results they want. Could you share what those hidden sources are? Yeah. And so many people, when they first come at a ketogenic diet, they're hardcore, full bore, you know, full steam ahead. And then it's just human nature to kind of get lazy as you're doing something. And so they also be like, well, I'm going to have a little of this. I'm going to have a little of that. And I call that creepy carbs or carb creep. And so you'll be eating 20 total grams or less of carbs for a few months and doing great on keto. But then you start adding back, I'm going to eat a little of this, a little of that. And before you know it, you're doing this uh, thing and you're like, well, I just had a little of that. But you're having a little of that every single day. And it's a different thing every day. But basically, what you're doing is turning back up the carbohydrate knob and turning back up the amount of industrial seed oils that you're eating. And that's going to slow down your fat loss and it's going to increase your inflammation again. And so I have people go back and look at their diet with fresh eyes or if they have a, a keto coach or a keto friend, have, you know, take a picture of everything you eat, that go, everything that goes in your mouth, take a picture and send it to your keto coach or to your keto friend and let them look at it because they'll be quick to go, whoa, what's that? Well, oh, I just had a little of it. And they'll be like, dude, you're having a little bit of something every day. You're probably eating an extra 10 or 20 or 30 grams of carbs a day. And then also that's got canola oil or soybean oil in it. That's causing inflammation. And so that accountability immediately turns back down the carbohydrate knob and then they start to lose weight again. Big food is trying to make a profit. Let me, in case you didn't realize this, 
big food does not give a damn about your health or your A1C or your, your degree of inflammation in your body. They're in business to make a profit for their board of directors. And so this goes for the big food manufacturers whose product you would buy in the grocery. It also goes for the, the big restaurant chains. They Obviously, they want to be healthy, but if they can add a little canola oil and that saves them two cents per plated meal, they're going to do that because that's not going to kill anybody quickly. There'll never be a class action lawsuit about that. They are legally very, very safe in doing that. And nobody died immediately. So therefore they, their conscience is safe as well. Well, they're going to do that. Just like Kraft and Kellogg's and Post, if they can cut us, you know, one-tenth of a penny off what it costs to produce a bowl of cereal by using GMO wheat or corn, you can damn well bet they're going to do that because they're in business to make a profit. And so you cannot trust any manufacturer or any restaurant with your health. You have to know what's in your food because the whole thing that made you fat and unhealthy and diabetic was the poison that you were eating. And so if you just blindly, you know, go to Chili's and say, I'm going to have their baby back ribs, I'm sure it's fine. No, you probably just ate 40 grams of, of carbohydrates in the form of sugar, and then you also got some industrial seed oils, and you technically ate ribs, right, which is, should be ketogenically fine, but those ribs ain't fine at Chili's. Trust me, You even if you get them dry, they're still going to have a few grams of carbohydrates because Chili's, and I'm not picking on Chili's. When I say Chili's, I mean any. Let's, let's talk about McWendy King. Let's say it that way. That way you understand I'm talking about every fast food restaurant. They're in business to make a profit. And when it, when it comes to down to it, they're going to save a penny when they can. And if that harms your health a tiny bit, they don't really care. Yeah. Uh, and when I go to restaurants, it kind of used to drive my girlfriend crazy. I used to always ask, I always ask the waitress or the waiter, what oil do you cook with? And 99% of the time, they're going to say canola, a soybean, uh, olive oil blend. And, I, and I, I tell them, I'm allergic to vegetable oil. Can you use olive oil or butter and they'll usually say yeah you know i'm not a jerk about it and i, I do it every single time because That's i know perfect. i love that and i actually have told people on my facebook page before you should have a little business card size laminated that says i am allergic to sugar in all forms all grains and and the following oils please do not put any of these in my meal and if you did that the manager is immediately going to be alerted like oh my god we got one of these people in here but you're going to probably get a much cleaner meal and I don't think you lied. I think you're telling the truth. I think all humans are, are allergic to those things in some degree. And so I, I highly advocate you do that. And when enough people do that, the, the big chain restaurants will either go out of business or they'll figure out a way to actually cook real human food without those dangerous components. And uh, we actually had a local restaurant here in Camden that tried to go keto. They started cooking everything in lard and they, they tried to get, and they had real butter and after about six months of that, they went out of business because nobody wanted yeah. to pay the, the upcharge to eat real food. And nobody was, there's not enough people, even in Benton County where I live, interested in eating real food. They just didn't want to pay the extra little, you know, 25 to 100 cents for each plated meal. That's what it was going to cost, you know, somewhere between a quarter, quarter and a dollar. Nobody wanted to pay that. And so they went out of business. And so... People don't understand they vote with their dollars. And when you go to a restaurant and you eat a crappy meal, you just voted with your dollars. And you told that restaurant, yes, I want crappy food. But when you stop doing that, the restaurants, they'll either go out of business or they will change what they cook with because they want your money. That's, they have to have your money to stay in business. And, you know, testimony right there, our poor little restaurant went out of business. It wasn't mine. It was a friend of mine who was, he, he had had a restaurant for years 
and he tried to start cooking with good quality ingredients because he believed in keto. He believed in real food, whole food, and he went out of business because nobody would pay the extra. Yeah, it's an uphill battle. Uh, it definitely is. And, and uh, I love that idea about the card with the grains and the and the vegetable oils. I uh, I read a study in this book called The PEO Solution by Dr. Brian Peskin, and uh, the study showed that uh, a plate of French fries that were fried in canola oil resulted in 132 days of cell membrane inflammation, meaning five minutes of pleasure equals five months of dysfunction. So that stuff is just, it has nowhere to go in our cells. It just sits there and it's just inflaming it. And people don't realize, and this is a more of a physiological concept, but I want everybody listening to understand every cell membrane in your body, every single cell, has a membrane around it. And that membrane uses fat and cholesterol as an integral part of that membrane. And so if you're eating lots of tallow and butter and, and bacon grease and eating lots of egg yolks and eating lots of sardines, your body has the building blocks to build a very healthy cell membrane. And what Ben said is absolutely true. When you go eat something that's fried in, in canola or soybean oil, first of all, these oils oxidize very quickly and it's pricey for restaurants to change out their oil and so very often they won't change it out but even if they changed it every day the oil's still unhealthy but it can become almost deadly if they keep using that oil because it doesn't stink yet and they're like yeah it's probably fine we'll use it we'll go ahead and use that old oil today as well when you eat something fried in that oil your body only has access to the fats that you eat Right. And so if all you've eaten is canola and soybean and peanut oil and safflower oil, then that's all your body has. And so your cell membranes wind up being built with inferior products, right, with inferior fats. And so your cell membranes don't do their job as efficiently. And I think this is one of the reasons you may have heard about this, Ben. People, when they start eating good, healthy fats, they can stay in the sun a lot longer. They don't burn as easily. They're able to develop a tan better. And it's because their cell membranes in their skin are now built of healthy fats and and built of good, healthy cholesterol. And so their skin cell membranes function more properly. And so they can actually make melanin and they can actually not burn if they've been in the sun three minutes. And I've noticed that I can stay in the sun four times as long as I could back when I was eating the stupid American diet. And even if I get a little pink the next day, that's turned into tan and I don't, I don't burn and peel. Like literally I could be in the sun seven minutes, 10 years ago, I would burn and peel. It was going to happen. And so I would get my phone and say, Hey, you know, wake me up in seven minutes because that's literally as long as I could stay in the sun back in the day. And now I can stay four times that long before I have to start looking for shade, but that's just one example. So the cells that make up the retina of your eye, the cells that make up your heart muscle, the cells that make up your liver, all those cells have a membrane. And if you've been feeding your body fats, which is what canola and soybean and peanut and all those other industrial seed oils are, you have, your cells are weak. They're crippled. They can't do their job properly. And that's so important to overall human health. Yeah. And the cell membrane communicates with our DNA. It'll turn on bad genes and you got problems there. So it's the bodyguard of the cell. If you're made up of crap, you're going to be triggering bad things. And and here's the deal. Whole foods, which I, I go to whole foods and I shop, but they're loaded with these vegetable oils, that hot bar loaded with it. So we just need to look at the ingredients, not fall for the actual marketing. Anytime you pick up a food product that has an ingredient label, your very first action should be to read the ingredient list. And if you don't know a word, 
you need to search it on the internet and figure out what that word means. Anybody, anywhere in the world now, you do not have to be a food chemist. You can Google that word, and in five minutes, you can know exactly what that word is. You can have read a couple of articles about that additive, and is it safe for human beings to eat or not? Because I can promise you guys listening, the Food and Drug Administration, there are so many hundreds of chemicals that are generally regarded as safe, and that's a GRAS rating. And what that means is it doesn't kill you quickly. That's all that means, is there's no evidence that it's gonna kill you quickly, and it's called generally regarded as safe. And canola falls under that. Uh, Aspartame falls under that. And so, so many things that are slowly toxic to the human body are, are generally regarded as safe, and they ain't safe. You need to start reading labels and stop eating those things. Yeah, 100%. You got to be your own health detective. I call myself the health detective, and we want to empower other people to become as such. Switching gears here real quick before I have the last questions to ask you. Exercise is a terrible approach to weight loss. If your goal is to lose weight, joining the gym is a waste of time. And money. Absolutely right. And that probably hurts your heart a little as a CrossFit guy. But I'm (laughs) sorry. I understand that. I I get that. (laughs) All of the meaningful research shows that moving more, exercising more, joining the gym, joining CrossFit. And I love CrossFit, but but that is a terrible way to lose fat because that's our goal if we're overweight. We don't want to lose muscle. We don't want to lose bone strength. We don't want to lose any of our vital tissues. We want to lose fat. And exercise is a terrible strategy to lose fat. If you want to lose fat, you got to fix your diet. Now, if you want to build muscle, You've got to lift weights. If you want to increase your endurance, you've got to do endurance sports. You've got to exercise. If you want to slash your risk of dementia, you you need to exercise. You need to be active. There are hundreds and hundreds of things that exercise is great for, but fat loss ain't one of them. I agree with you 100% because I used to be all about, hey, if you want to lose weight and get healthy, cut your calories, exercise more, and did that. I saw that it did not work. And I changed my approach. I know that it's much more than just calories and exercising more. So why, Dr. Barry, are there PhD scientists and dietitians and nutritionists and doctors saying that we're the crazy ones and it's just a calorie expenditure hypothesis that they are laying out on us? It's for the same exact reasons that obstetricians back in Semmelweis' time refused to wash their hands because they're going to have to admit Dude, I was wrong about that. And for some people, it hurts way more to, to admit they're wrong than for other people. I was happy to admit that I was wrong because my medical practice sucked. I hated going to the office every day because all I ever did, people got fatter, people got sicker, and I just prescribed more and more pills. That was a crappy existence for me. I hated that. But now that I can actually teach people how to improve their own health, I freaking love that. But there are PhD researchers, there are MD PhDs, there's MDJDs out there who hate, absolutely abhor admitting they're wrong. It's just not part of their DNA to admit that they're wrong, and so they can't do it. And so, I, I, I mean, there, you know as well as I do, there are calorie in, calorie out Instagram accounts that have four or five million followers. You think they wouldn't shed a couple of million followers if they said, dude, Calorie in, calorie out does not work for fat loss. Stop doing it. Stop. I mean, you, and so basically my opinion is, is that we can never know our calorie needs. You can never calculate that number. That, is, that calculation is actually a calculus equation. 
to think that you can know somebody's height, weight, age, and gender, and you can meaningfully calculate their caloric needs for a day is ignorance, okay? To think that you can know what a person did in their day and then calculate their cal caloric expenditure for that day is abject ignorance. That is a calculus problem that's basically, the, the answer to it is unknowable on a daily basis because hundreds of physiological processes go into that calculation. Things that, that we can never know the answer to. Was your liver slightly inflamed today? Well, that's gonna change your caloric expenditure and your caloric needs. Did you sleep well last night? That's gonna change both of those numbers. What percentage was your workout? Were you 100% today or 97.2%? Nobody can ever know the answer to that. And so to pretend that you can calculate someone's caloric expenditure or their caloric needs is literally like the doctors in Semmelweis' time saying, I don't have to wash my hands. It's okay if I've got some rotten liver on my hand when I go deliver this baby. That's exactly the same mental process, the same paradigm. And that's the paradigm that you and I are fighting against. But these guys, I mean, these guys have huge social media followings and they've got publishing deals with huge publishing houses you think they're just going to go on their facebook live and say hey i was that was wrong stop counting calories that's ignorance that never helps anybody you think white white watchers is ever going to say that no their whole model is built on that their, their million or billion dollar industry is built on calories in calories out coca-cola i just posted on my facebook page yesterday an article on medium.com uh, Coca-Cola is paying doctors and nutritionists and dietitians and people with big social media followings. They're writing them checks to say, move more, eat less. If, it's okay to drink Coke, but just drink the little mini can. That's, that's a great treat because it has fewer calories. I mean, that, that is lunacy. But yet Coca-Cola, which is a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation, they're happy to pay these people. Mm -hmm. And evidently these health experts are happy to take that check with three or four mm -hmm. or five zeros on it from Coca-Cola to trick people into thinking it's okay for this doctor to deliver your baby with filthy hands. Drop the mic. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. I always tell my clients that, or not even clients, but my audience, my community, that if you have somebody coaching you, health coach, nutritionist, or whatever it is, and they're teaching you how to eat less and move more, and that's their main focus, that's a red flag. They have no idea what is going on in the human body? And you just said it so well. Yeah, it, if you're follow, following anybody on social media and they even mention move more, eat less, or calories in, calories out, you can hit the unfollow button at, right at that moment because you can rest assured they are not going to be able to help you with your health journey whatsoever. That's right. Okay, I have, I have so many questions. I'm going to get to the last ones here. We'll do some rapid fire and we'll wrap things up here. It's been a lot of fun. You've worked with thousands of patients from two years old, maybe even younger, to you just had a, a recent patient who passed away 102 years old. Out of all of your patients from 2 to 102, what's the main commonality you've seen with the ones that had the best success? Success, what, the main themes. The, the ones that are the healthiest and have the least amount of chronic disease are the ones that eat food products with the least amount of ingredients on the package label. The great-great-grandmother who just passed away at 102. That was a few months ago now, but she looked just like the queen mother. I mean, literally, and she acted like the queen mother too, and she was very mentally alert. She had her opinions. She had her jokes at 102, 
and she would still get up and she would cook or she would. And so when she ate, she ate meat and vegetables. That's what she ate. She might have a little bread or a little something, but the majority of her diet was one ingredient foods, right? She would have roasted beef or roasted pork and she would have some turnip greens and some green beans. It was one ingredient things. And, and if you started trying to give her a bunch of, of products, she just wouldn't eat it. She's like, nah, I don't know about that. And that goes also for the young kids, for the one, two, and three-year-olds, the ones that don't have eczema and the ones that don't have chronic allergies and repeated ear infections and acne even in their, you know, before they're a teenager, those kids are the kids that their parents feed them real whole foods. And they may eat a lot of fruit and they may eat a lot of this and that and the other, but it's one ingredient things that doesn't give big food a chance to make more profits by sliding more crap into the processed things. And so it's perfectly fine for your baby to eat, you know, strawberries and blueberries and to chew on a, a rib bone that you've already cleaned and, and to eat ground up uh, avocado and to eat ground up liver. Those are good foods for your baby. Those babies that eat those kinds of foods, they don't have eczema when they're three months old. They don't have all the problems, the reflux. I mean, they're four-year-old children who are on a daily reflux medication because of the poison that their parents are unknowingly giving them. That kind of crap's got to stop. But my patients that are the healthiest and do the best, first of all, I don't see them very often, right? Because they don't need me. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones who are eating one-ingredient foods. Awesome. So I just have an idea if somebody wants to write a book, The One-Ingredient Diet for Longevity. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are you most excited about right now, Dr. Barry? I'm excited about how close we are to the tipping point. I just came off the low-carb cruise, and I got to meet one of my heroes, uh, nurse Jackie Eberstein, who was the, per the nurse of Dr. Robert Atkins his entire career. She was his nurse, and she is continuing the low-carb ketogenic message. And I asked her, I said, Nurse Jackie, how close are we to the tipping point where low-carb keto carnivore is going to become just mainstream common sense. She said, obviously, we're closer now than we've ever been because back in the 70s and 80s, when she was practicing with Dr. Atkins, she, she told the story. When she would come around and turn the corner going down the street to where his clinic was, all his employees knew that if there were cop cars or FBI cars sitting in front of the clinic, they were to go to the coffee shop across the street and call his attorney. They practiced in literal fear every day that he was going to be shut down by the powers that be, by the state medical board, by the state troopers, by the FBI, because what he was saying was so against the grain back then. But she said, now most doctors don't really have to fear the medical board unless they're in a draconian state like Tennessee. You're pretty safe in that regard. But she said, I think we're so close. We're just literally right on top of the tipping point. And that made my heart so happy to hear that there are about to be hundreds of thousands of people who hear low-carb keto carnivore is just a common-sense message. Like, duh, that's what you're supposed to eat, man. You're a human being. Why would you not eat that? Why would you eat these packaged products in cardboard boxes? That ain't even real food. That's about to become mainstream, Ben. And that, that man, that's it. That's a home run for me. When, when every Uber driver and every shoe mm. shiner and every factory worker in the world just knows, eat real food, dummy. Mm, I'm excited about that, too. That's amazing. What are you grateful for right now? I'm grateful for my wife that and my children, man. If it weren't for them, I'd probably be in prison right now. I mean, I don't know. I mean, she literally just turned me around and slapped me around and said, dude, stop doing all this dumb 
and do this smart and I'm like okay so I'm thankful for her, for her for slapping me around and I'm thankful that I had enough common sense to actually listen to a smart woman what is your definition of perfect health my definition of perfect health I said it earlier is kicking the soccer ball around with my great grandkids out in the yard and and showing them how to do a belly buster in the pool that's that's my goal and that I think if you make it to that point and you still have the mental faculties and the physical capability to do those things, then you did enough stuff right in your life that you should be proud of yourself. Where can people find your work? So the, my book, as my doctor told me is available everywhere. Books are sold. It's available on uh, Kindle. It's available on Nook and sometime in August, maybe late, late August, the audible version will be available as well. I have a Facebook page. I'm very active on. I just posted three things this morning on my Facebook page. I've got a YouTube channel. I try to post new videos at least once, if not twice a week on YouTube. When I'm feeling especially snarky, I'll go to Twitter and slap the ADA or somebody around on Twitter. I also got an Instagram account. And so I try to be on all the social medias but the, the majority of my work is on YouTube and Facebook. And then I have a, a web page that uh, Nisha, my wife, made. It's kendberrymd.com. And you can find links to all my other social media on the web page. I'm going to put everything that you mentioned in the notes. So those listening or those watching, you're going to see it down below. Dr. Ken Berry, I want to acknowledge you and say, first and foremost, thank you for your time today. This was such an enlightening episode. And you're a trailblazer. You're taking a lot of arrows for people like myself. And the ripple effect, you're never going to comprehend your ripple effect because I'm learning so much from you continuously. And I bring that to my community. And my community brings it to their community. And it's just this ripple effect that you're never going to grasp, but, but it's there. And I really admire your work. I admire what you're doing. You are just straight up the truth. And you're not afraid to admit you are wrong. That is so powerful. And there's a quote here before we wrap it up that I want to read. And it reminds me a lot about, about you. Uh, and it's from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. And you, my friend, are a trailblazer. So I want to say thank you so much for your brilliance. Thank you so much, brother. And I want to leave you with a quote that a friend of mine, Dr. Peter Ballerstead, often says, when an honest man finds out that he's wrong about something, he either stops being wrong or he stops being a good man. Mm. And a lot of our calorie in, calorie out colleagues and a lot of our big pharma and big food executives need to realize that when an honest man finds out he's wrong, he either stops being wrong or he stops being honest. And which one have you done? Mm -hmm. Such a powerful question. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry. Thanks, Ben. My pleasure. I'll, I will have to do this again sometime. Well, there you have it, my friends. That was an amazing conversation. We went over time a little bit and we were just in that flow, in that zone. These are the type of conversations that make a big difference. If you have a family member, a friend, somebody in your life, maybe it's you who's suffering with diabetes, who's suffering with a condition that is treated by looking at the symptom and not getting to the root cause. I want you to share this with your community, share it with your family members, do more research to what we were discussing. I have put all the notes, all the links in the show notes. Make sure you go and do that research. Check out Dr. Ken Berry. Buy his book, Lies My Doctor Told Me. Look him up on YouTube. Watch his videos. 
educate yourself and share this episode with somebody in your family, somebody that you care about that is going through a very difficult time with their health. Like we talked about, third party is so powerful. If you talk about it, you might be in that category of the powdered butt syndrome, which we spoke about. But if you have an episode that you share and there's two practitioners, myself and Dr. Barry talking about this, it might make a big difference for that person. So I wanna encourage you to do so. If you have not rated and reviewed the Keto Camp podcast, please do so. It will help the show out tremendously. It'll help the algorithms out and get this to more people. Also, go to my YouTube channel, the Keto Camp YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Keto Camp. That's camp with the K. And subscribe to my channel. I'm releasing four brand new videos on the channel every single week. If you haven't gotten my Keto Kickstart Guide, go to www.ketokickstartguide.com. Claim it for free. And lastly, if you want to use the supplements that I use that help boost my keto and fasting results, go to www.ketocampsupplements.com. And that website, I've curated all the healthy supplements that are whole food sourced from credible brands. And I got rid of all the junk, all the synthetic stuff. You won't find that on there. So if you're looking for supplements, these are the ones I use that'll help boost your results with keto and fasting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. You will hear me soon on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.